And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. But it could be a day, a week, a month that brings us closer to an extraordinarily dangerous confrontation. A dangerous confrontation with an almost nuclear power. The uh, Islamic Republic, so-called, of Iran. Uh, two oil tankers have been seized by Iran, and they have been spotted off the coast of one of the country's key port cities on the strategic uh, Strait of Hormuz. Satellite images show the Advantage Suite and the Neovi tankers anchored near a naval base south of the city of Bandar Abbas in Iran's Hormozgan uh, province. Uh, what is going on, and uh, how close are we to the state of Israel taking action to defend itself against a country that has pledged to see to Israel's elimination and annihilation. Uh, that's a question to ask Ilan Berman. He's just returned from the Middle East. He was uh, two weeks in uh, Israel. He is senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., a frequent guest on the show, I'm proud to say. He's an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Russian Federation. He has been consulted uh, with the uh, uh, U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, as well as the U.S. Departments of State and Defense. Um, Ilan, first of all, what is the story with these tankers? And secondly, are we really dramatically closer to a potential military confrontation with Iran? Oh, uh, <laughs> those are big questions. Um, let me see if I can answer them. So the uh, the, uh, the tanker, sort of the, the seizures, right, two tankers in less than a week, um, is part of a larger pattern. What we're increasingly seeing is that Iran is out of the box. Iran is emboldened. Uh, Iran is making uh, fairly significant military moves uh, in the sort of in the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, but not that's not the only place where Iran is sort of stepping up its activities. So Microsoft last week released a, a big study that they did of Iranian cyber activity over the last year, and what they noted was that Iran was increasingly active in cyberspace. Uh, in and is carrying out influence operations trying to destabilize Israeli society, trying to destabilize societies in, the per in countries in the Persian Gulf. So the aggregate picture that emerges is that, you know, what you had was a regime that was at least for momentarily on its back foot because of the protests that had broken out uh, and ha are still going on since last September uh, over the, uh, the hijab, the uh, female headscarf. Uh, and the restrictions that the regime had imposed on uh, women in the Islamic Republic. But as those protests go on and on, as uh, sort of, uh, you know, the, the regime successfully weathers round after round of protests, they're getting bolder. They're figuring out that they can sort of, they can stand uh, and they can, they can weather the domestic instability. And as a result, they're beginning to stretch uh, strategically in the region. And so this is what we're seeing. And, and the tanker seizures, the cyber activity, and frankly, uh, growing Israeli worries are a function of that. Well, right now, of course, there's a great deal of political turmoil in Israel over potential judicial reform, Supreme Court reform. 
And uh, what you say in in your most recent piece, which we're posting at our website, people can read it at michaelmedved.com. Title of the piece is Israel's Deepening Iran Dilemma. The optimal scenario, at least as seen from Jerusalem, you write, is for the United States to give Israel the advanced military capabilities it needs to set back Iran's nuclear enterprise. We're not talking about the kind of uh, massive armament or rearmament that, that is involved with Ukraine. This would be more specialized, wouldn't it? Absolutely. No, we're talking about, uh, for example, in-air uh, refueling for fighter jets, um, the sort of the type of advanced uh, ordinance in terms of bombs that Israel needs to uh, target uh, hardened uh, distributed nuclear facilities and sort of get underground and, and get at them. Um, but the point is, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Michael? Hello? Michael? Michael? Hello? Okay. Um, the, uh, uh, what, what you see is you see the, is increasingly the Israelis are being forced to make hard choices because for a long time, the Israel, I mean, Israel is a country the size of New Jersey, nine and a half million citizens. They have for a long time uh, been uh, very reluctant to take the leading role in thinking about uh, military action against Iran. They've been hoping for a long time that the United States would solve this Iran problem. But increasingly, uh, Iranian military, uh, military nuclear advances, uh, the maturity of the Iranian nuclear program, and frankly, the current administration's uh, dogged pursuit of some sort of re-engagement and nuclear deal with, uh, with the Islamic Republic has convinced them that um, there's really, uh, you know, that if there's going to be a military option, it's going to be something that they undertake on their own. And that's why they're having this sort of this uh, internal, uh, really serious moment of inflection, this gut check moment about the future of their Iran policy. Republic... Uh, Islamic Republic of Iran has long represented the most significant strategic challenge facing Israel. Today, despite years of persistent focus as well as a range of covert initiatives to erode Iranian military and technological capabilities, that threat has grown significantly. And as he writes, as I heard on a recent fact-finding trip to the country, two things are drawing the fateful moment closer. The first is Iran's own accelerating nuclear advances. The country was recently discovered to have enriched uranium to 84% purity. The second is the bankruptcy of the current U.S. administration's approach to the threat from Iran. The Biden administration took office promising to scupper the maximum pressure policy of its predecessor and to re-engage diplomatically with Iran as a way of curtailing its regional uh, menace. More than a year on, the White House remains committed to uh, resuscitating the 2015 nuclear deal between Iran and the West, even though Israeli experts say it is abundantly clear that for the Iranian side, this is now a dead issue. Um, as a result, the U.S. doesn't have much of a plan B for preventing Iranian nuclearization. And this is the uh, the real problem that they're facing. Ilan, are you there? 
Hello, Elon. Uh, the uh, uh, the the difficulty that uh, we're having right now uh, to uh, to give Israel the advanced military capabilities it needs to set back Iran's nuclear enterprise for as long as possible, but such a scenario remains remote. He writes because of Washington's fixation with the idea that some sort of deal with Iran is still possible. And as a result, the Israeli view holds the White House isn't prepared to do what is necessary. Uh, we will be right back on The Medved Show. Are you... F And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, we're back with uh, Ilan Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. And Ilan, we're hearing each other okay right now, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> I, I could hear you before, too. <laughs> but... Well, good. I, I just, for some reason, couldn't hear you, and I'm, <laughs> I'm glad if, if, if other people could. Uh, there's a question about America communicating with Israel right now, especially given the fact of uh, very intense political division in Israel and uh, talk of uh, some new election being forced and uh, the fact that the current Netanyahu government uh, may be a little bit shaky at this point. Is there agreement on the dangers of Iran and the right way to approach Iran in uh, spite of all of the other divisions in Israeli politics? Right. So, so this is uh, one of the very few issues. And you're right. The uh, Israeli body politic is uh, undergoing a very tumultuous time. Um, not so dissimilar from uh, sort of what we experienced not too long ago. Um, as I always like to say, uh, Israeli politics is American politics with a seven-second tape delay. So if you see things that look somewhat similar, it's probably because uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so you're seeing this sort of uh, political discord that isn't totally alien to us, right? There's a there's a enormously acrimonious judicial reform uh, debate inside the country. Uh, virtually everybody in Israel agrees that the judiciary needs to be reformed in some way, but there's no trust between the left and the right. And so they're, they're essentially fighting over uh, the contours of, of what that, those reforms will be. But that's an issue that divides the Israeli electorate. Um, issues like Iran, uh, you know, one of the very few issues that actually brings them together. And so there's a tremendous amount of continuity uh, from government to government about what needs to happen with regard to Iran. And uh, the, uh, my, my sense is that the, that trajectory is going to continue, and that debate is intensifying in Israel um, uh, against the backdrop of a U.S. administration that is, uh, Israeli politicians really uh, think is pursuing a failed policy of engagement with the Islamic Republic, and a sense in Israel uh, increasingly urgently that the Iranian nuclear program is, is mature, it's progressing, nobody's going to stop it and Israel's going to have to take matters into its own hands. Well, taking matters into its own hands, uh, as you write in your piece, and I think most people acknowledge, 
it would be unthinkable for Israel to take matters into their own hands without at least the cooperation or tacit approval of the United States. What would be the dangers or the main risks to America and American interests? Right. No, no, that's absolutely correct. And, and actually, one of the really important signals that you heard over the weekend, um, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was in Saudi Arabia, and he actually uh, sort of specifically made a point of articulating publicly that uh, if Israel moves independently against Iran, it would have U.S. support, right? This is an important signal. It was a signal intended to shore up the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but it was a signal also to instill confidence in policymakers in Jerusalem that uh, the U.S. may be sort of sitting uh, sitting as a bystander, but the U.S. would not put any sticks in the spokes of uh, any Israeli policy. But uh, as I know in my piece, uh, that is a suboptimal American response, because what the Israelis are looking at is a situation where they, they're not confident they can get rid of the entire Iranian nuclear program um, in, its, in its entirety right now. They're looking for greater capabilities. They're looking for a greater freedom of action than what they have currently. And so there are risks that are involved. There are risks involved in an Israeli military strike that only targets part of the program, only delays it partially or only delays it temporarily. Um, that's something that is likely to uh, create uh, quite a bit of tension in the region. It's something that's going to blow back on Israel in the form of asymmetric retaliation. But it's also something that could implicate U.S. interests in the region as well. And so it's something that folks in Washington are watching very closely. What's the uh, greatest risk of um, the United States just continuing to pursue uh, reviving the Iran deal? I mean, if the Iran deal doesn't get revived, what's the worst that can happen? Well, so the the my big uh, problem, my big uh, complaint with the Iran deal, um, even in its original formulation back in 2015, was that it was a formula to force a binary choice upon the United States because it wasn't a lasting solution to the Iranian nuclear program. It was just a sort of kicking the nuclear can down the road. And if you do that, if you don't think of plan B's, plan C's, if you don't empower regional deterrence, if you don't do all the hard stuff that needs to happen in order for the Iranians to be intimidated, for the Iranians to be contained, then you end up at a fork in the road, right? It, it, it's a region that's dominated by a nuclear Iran, because Iran is going to cross the nuclear threshold, or it's some sort of military confrontation in order to prevent Iran from going nuclear. And sadly, that's exactly where we're headed. And uh, uh, how how is that um, most likely to play itself out? I mean, obviously, you're talking about the edge of crisis here. Which which way do we fall down uh, being perched right now on that edge? Well, I, I think we're uh, sort of the, the further we go in time, the more uh, mature the Iranian nuclear program uh, becomes, the more likely some sort of independent Israeli action, military action against the Iranian nuclear program becomes as well. This is obviously we have a stake in this. We're a huge stakeholder because we have American interests and servicemen and women in the region, but also because we, uh, at, at least as far as I'm concerned, we are not an impartial party in all this, right? There's a desired outcome. It's an outcome uh, in which the Ayatollahs do not acquire this capability at this time, in this fashion. And as a result, you know, our sort of uh, playing with the idea of 
negotiations uh, which have an infinite timeline, I, I, frankly, I think is very dangerous because it's forcing hard choices on our allies and it's creating outcomes where American interests, because of our inaction, are going to be adversely impacted, right? If you choose not to decide, you've still made a choice. And uh, again, the idea of uh, using nuclear power uh, not just against uh, Israel, but against uh, Saudi Arabia, against the other nations that are party to the Abraham Accords, the uh, whole structure of what had hoped to be a more peaceful, cooperative Middle East becomes uh, at risk. Uh, we'll post uh, we'll post Elon's most recently recent piece on Israel's deepening Iran dilemma. Uh, that's posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. Um, I hope we will be speaking to you, Ilan, in uh, days to come on good news. Uh, meanwhile, uh, some bad news uh, regarding killings in this country. That and more coming up on the Medved Show. Michael Medved. He has control over this world. This is the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, there was a brutal weekend uh, this weekend uh, with 25 uh, shooting victims, four of them fatalities in Chicago. And uh, in Texas, of course, that awful shooting at an outlet mall, uh, an outlet mall that took eight lives. And then uh, another incident, which may or may not have been intentional. The driver has already been uh, charged with manslaughter, which indicates a lack of intentionality, but plowing into a whole group of immigrants who were killed. Uh, and uh, that in Brownsville, Texas, uh, right near the border, a border that is about to be overrun, uh, according to all experts, by the end of Title 42 which is another sign of mishandling by the uh, Biden administration. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas uh, responded to the uh, shooting at an outlet mall in uh, a way that um, I'm not sure entirely adds up. This is the governor of Texas uh, talking about the eight people who died in uh, Allen, Texas, uh, clip, clip 16. And I'll be going up to Allen uh, later today to uh, begin the process of uh, providing hope and, and healing. But I got to tell you that there are questions that are lingering that the families want answers to. And that is, why did this happen? Why did the gunman do this? Uh, how did this happen? Uh, and I know that those families uh, need an answer as quickly as possible. And then the last thing I'll tell you, and, and I just want to reiterate, 
my gratitude and the gratitude of all Texans uh, for the swift response of that police officer. He had just a single police officer who had to confront uh, that dangerous gunman uh, and did the right thing uh, by uh, taking swift action to eliminate the gunman. And we are uh, great for uh, that officer's heroism. And again, it, it, it's a great act of good fortune that he happened to be there. This is not even a police officer was called. He just happened to be in the vicinity of the mall, and he took it uh, as his own responsibility to take the gunman, uh, Mauricio Garcia, down. Uh, it appears that the, the gunman had a fairly deep involvement with uh, white supremacist extremist organizations. He was uh, wearing a... Um, a patch uh, on his person when he was killed that said uh, RWDS is meaning right-wing death squad. And this provoked a far more emotional response from other political leaders in Texas. Uh, Texas State Representative Gene Wu, a Democrat, uh, had this to say. Uh, in reaction to the Allen Mall mass shooting. Clip 13. I cry because every time I see that video, to see those pictures, I see my son. There is no safe place in America anymore. There is no church that's safe. There is no school that's safe. There's no shopping mall that's safe. There's no library that's safe. Not because of books not because of trans kids who want health care, but because of things that people own. Because we value things over people. Okay, this is a line that is being used by uh, some Democrats recently, that this is all about things uh, over people. And... The difficulty here is this kind of incident doesn't just occur in Texas. It occurs in California, where they have very intense gun laws. There are, are shootings literally every weekend in Chicago, where Illinois has some of the toughest gun laws in the country. And the idea that that so repeatedly we go through this pattern as something awful happens like this. The one thing that I think everyone can agree with, I would hope that everyone can agree with, is an individual like this with a background as a uh, white supremacist, as a, a background with uh, um, basically extremely sick and racist preoccupations, regardless of his, of his own racial background that that we should take greater care to make sure that uh, that weapons, uh, particularly the most sophisticated and deadly weapons, don't fall into the hands of someone like that. Uh, the uh, Texas State Senator Morgan Lamontia uh, spoke about the other killing over the weekend which was a driver killing at least eight migrants by plowing into them in front of a Brownsville shelter. Uh, the current 
state of that investigation suggests that he had run a red light, the driver, and was not intentionally trying to mow down uh, the people who were gathered at a bus stop in front of a Brownsville shelter. But still, the comment from uh, State Senator Morgan Lamontia was this. So in the state of Texas, we treat everyone's lives equally, regardless of their citizenship status. And these individuals that came across, they came across recently uh, across the border. And this is after through over three months of travel through some of the most dangerous terrain and going through just very, very dangerous situations. And yet they made it to Texas. They're one of the lucky few that actually made it to our borders. And at a point where they should be able to breathe easy and be safe, we failed them as a state. We failed them and we weren't able to protect them. And they were mowed down. Their lives were taken. Their families' hopes were taken. And this is something with Title 42 ending, with the influx of more migrants coming across, more individuals coming to our state, we need to make sure we protect them at every step of the way. Well, it, protection uh, uh, was for the people of Texas was what Governor Abbott talked about with the new Texas tactical border force to handle an expected surge of migrants. Uh, listen, clip 17. We are deploying today a, a new Texas tactical border force uh, made up of elite National Guard who are specifically trained for one thing, uh, and that is to identify areas uh, where illegal immigrants are trying to cross the border and to fill that gap and to repel them, to deny them access to entry into the United States. They can do it one of several ways. Uh, they can physically turn back uh, those who are trying to cross the border illegally. Also, they are building uh, immediate Constantino wire uh, border barriers that prevent people from coming across the border. Okay, I, I, again, uh, the the mess at the border with the elimination of Title 42 is uh, one of those reasons that the polling you will find on uh, President Biden right now is so terribly disastrous, is... Uh, None of this appears to be going well. There's actually a commentary in the Wall Street Journal about the attempt to borrow President Reagan's Morning in America theme, which uh, helped him win 49 states in 1984 in that election. Uh, Ken Kachigian, who's one of the people behind that Morning in America campaign, says... It is absolutely appalling that Biden, given the state of the country right now, is trying to make use of that same optimistic theme. We will get to that controversy and much more coming up on the Medved Show. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Michael Medved. People know me. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show another news bulletin that uh, you haven't heard as much about not yet anyway 
Uh, ABC News is reporting that a 17-year-old girl was killed, five others injured, in a drive-by shooting following a large house party in California. And I mention California not because it's the largest state uh, with uh, the... Actually, I believe California, being the largest state, has the largest number of murder deaths in the country. Not per capita, but total. Uh, this was early Saturday, police said. The mass shooting occurred in the parking lot of an apartment complex in Chico, California. That's uh, 90 miles north of Sacramento. The uh, police chief told ABC News that police responded to the scene about 3.30 a.m. They found several victims struck by gunfire. A gunman had opened fire from a vehicle into a group of people in the parking lot. The actual shooting was not random, the police chief said, adding that it's unclear whether any of the six shooting victims were specifically targeted. But is is this kind of event simply the kind of thing where where we should shrug? No, of course we should do more. But it's also part of the reality of why people do not believe that it's mourning in America. Uh, the the increase in crime, and yes, in some cities, uh, they actually have had I improvements over the last two years. Uh, but generally, when when you include particularly non-fatal crimes and non-violent crimes, uh, the crime problem is a problem bigger than ever before, particularly issues like shoplifting. There are 27 major retail establishments that have left downtown San Francisco to pick on California again, which, of course, is all Democratic rule. That uh, In San Francisco, there are 27 retail establishments that have abandoned uh, their downtown locations where... It hasn't gone, and yet you you have President Biden uh, very ineffectively uh, trying to put together the Morning in America campaign. And the difficulty, writes Ken Kachigian, Ken Kachigian was chief speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, and he helped to produce the Morning in America commercials, which the Biden campaign is now trying to imitate. He writes, watching President Biden's opening announcement, meaning his announcement of candidacy, and his appearance at the White House Correspondents Association dinner, I see how deep are the concerns of the Biden team as they struggle to maintain the vibrancy of his persona. Reagan pulled off jokes about his age. He was 73 in 1984 because he was a veteran of 30 years on the speaking circuit telling stories and teeing up one-liners. It's amazing to think about. Reagan was nine years younger when he was running for uh, re-election than Biden is today. And uh, from the correspondence awkward reactions, it's also clear that Reagan had better gag writers than Mr. Biden does. Uh, well, the gag writers, including Ken Kachigian. One more thing, if Dutch couldn't remember the last country he visited, he would have had the whole room laughing with a story about John Wayne or Bob Hope. 
Mr. Biden not only couldn't remember his recent visit to Ireland, he struggled to hold the attention of an Irish 10-year-old and needed uh, help from his adult son to work the rope line. In 1984, our pollster was obsessed about the age issue, but we had easy solutions. He's talking about the Reagan campaign. In the first place, Reagan had a winning record on which to run. When challenged, he stepped up to the plate. He campaigned vigorously with the gifts of a veteran on the stump, always at ease with an audience. The electorate knew, and if they didn't, the White House staff told them that our guy spent his weekends and vacations riding horses, cutting brush, and building fences on his California ranch. If the Biden team is going to try to mimic Ronald Reagan's 1984 campaign, a campaign that led to him, Reagan, carrying 49 of the 50 states, every single state except for Minnesota. If the Biden team is going to try to mimic Ronald Reagan's 1984 campaign, they have their work cut out. My guess is that the best they can do is fly him to Delaware, hand him a pair of Ray-Bans, and film him sitting in his Corvette. Uh, that might not work. Uh, and, and part of it, because there are so many issues, including uh, issues about the president's son, Hunter, who is meeting with attorneys, and apparently they are getting close to a, a conclusion of the longstanding Justice Department investigation of Hunter Biden. Stephanie Rule uh, was asked President Biden uh, about um, how Hunter, e even though uh, he uh, is not president himself, could uh, help to bring down this presidency. This is clip 20. Sir, there is something personal that's affecting you. Your son, while there's no ties to you, could be charged by your Department of Justice. How will that impact your presidency? First of all, my son's done nothing wrong. I trust him. I have faith in him. And it impacts my presidency by making me feel proud of him. Okay, he feels proud of him. Uh, there's a, a, a point that is is very obvious here is that the Wall Street Journal points out that you can't say uh, my son has done nothing wrong, not when he is under active investigation by your own Justice Department and they have not determined that he has done nothing wrong. And clearly what President Biden is doing there is trying to influence the Department of Justice in a way that uh, isn't appropriate. There's another question that Stephanie Rule asks the president, and it's a strong question. The answer, not so strong. Uh, this is clip 19. You're talking about real practical solutions Absolutely. when you re reference insulin that, that, that you've come up with. Why do you think you don't get more credit for it? Why do you think your polling is where it is? Well, I don't think, people, by the way, every major one who won re-election, their polling numbers were mine are now. Put polling aside no, then, right? So. Sentiment in this but, country, despite well, all these wins, is I, not I, very I, good. I think all they've heard is negative news for three years. Everything is negative. I'm not being critical of the press. But you turn on the television, the only way you're going to get a hit is if there's something negative. Okay, so it's the problem of the press. 
and then we have the problem of the debt ceiling, which, by the way, could sink not just the Biden administration. I think, frankly, if they don't handle the debt ceiling appropriately, I don't see how President Biden can can continue his candidacy. Uh, it's here is um, President Biden trying to uh, reassure all of us about his ability to work with Kevin McCarthy. Clip 21. Is Kevin McCarthy an honest broker for you to negotiate with? I think he's an honest man. I think he's in a position, though, he had to make a deal that was pretty, you know, 15 votes. <laughs> 15 votes that uh, where he uh, just about sold away everything that he, that the far, far right. There's a Republican Party and there's the MAGA Republicans. And the MAGA Republicans really have put him in a position where, in order to stay speaker, he has to agree, he's agreed to things that maybe he believes, but are just extreme. Given the power that they have, is there anything you believe you can get done in the next two years on a bipartisan basis? And if so, what? The answer is yes, I do, if I get a chance to get votes. They have to vote. What is he saying exactly? And uh, again, we're talking about June 1st as a meaningful deadline for this debt ceiling. Uh, the level of disaster for our country, if they if they don't take care of this, is phenomenal. Uh, there are 43 Republican senators who have uh, now indicated they were not going to pass the, quote, clean debt ceiling increase. They want some moderation, some cuts in spending. Uh, how will that happen? Uh, and what's the constitutional basis? We'll be talking about a number of constitutional issues, including the Proud Boys and Trump cases and Hunter Biden and more, with Professor John Yoo, one of the top conservative legal scholars in the country, coming up in this greatest nation on God's green.